Welcome to Machine Learning. So, we start another week and uh, recovered my system after having uh, um, lost the op- operating system. And that's one of the things that Parallels is somewhat risky on is I couldn't recover my operating system and I hadn't done the save point and I hadn't checked my backups and so those are those were some risks that occurred and but I had set up my GitHub and things were up there and one of the things I found was once you reinstall your software your your code base has to uh, you have to install the components and I was having a problem with Visual Studio where my project wasn't uh, uh, getting to a, a certain state where I could do a compile and I was getting uh, a NET SDK error and so when I was doing searches on Stack Overflow for that particular error I couldn't figure it out so what I did is I did uh, I did NuGet clear cache and then I tried to do uh, .NET restore because I'm using .NET Core and uh, and I wasn't able to I was able to get all my packages to restore correctly but it it wasn't uh, it wasn't detecting a uh, project j.json file. And when I looked into that, I, I realized that my OBJ directory wasn't part of the project. And then I, I later read that, you know, you don't need to have that as part of your project. You don't necessarily check in your OBJs. And so, well, I, I, uh, I tried and tried to get it to compile and, I, and uh, you know, I, I tried to get the, the restore to work and, it just wasn't finding that file for some reason in the project. And when I tried to create a new project in the solution and compile and run it, it also was giving the same error, so it was across the solution. So then I concluded, well, I've got a solution problem. And so I created a new solution and added all my code back in there and, and then ran, ran the compile and it worked. And those are some of those little challenges uh, that XML created. Well, then I had to figure out, well, how am I gonna get all my packages in? So I opened up my project XML and I looked at the old X uh, project and I, and I found all the dependencies and I copied them into my XML. And then it did the restore and it got all the packages and then it compiled. So it really is quite a sophisticated process. It's all running on XML and and these definitions and .json files. And you kind of have to understand the pipeline. And I I, uh, was looking at a documentation that was explaining the pipeline and it was very comprehensive. I mean, it took several pages explaining the pipeline. I read through parts of it realized that that wasn't going to help me and so once I created my solution then I was I was good and then I also 
um, created a Git, Git repository for the new data, separated that solution out by itself, and then uh, did a Git init, cloned the, the repo, and then copied over my solution in code into that, and then it was updated that into the master and then set up a development branch. So those are those are things that are were kind of challenging, and uh, you know when things aren't working right, you don't. It's it's frustrating as a developer to go through all the the specs and try to figure out what what's going wrong. You know because you're getting error messages and the error messages are not really descriptive in terms of telling you what went wrong in the process, in the pipeline. So there's something that is not quite working right and the error, error codes are catching it and throwing those error codes, but then you get this error code and then you're trying to figure out from the engineering standpoint why that error code is being thrown. And so then you Stack Overflow becomes the, the answer to a lot of those questions. Well, and even when I was in Visual Studio Code and trying to bring up my Flutter, uh, I was having uh, dependency problems on that too. And so I was reading uh, a Stack Overflow about how to bring your dependencies to current level so that your compile would work and so there was a command that uh, was used on your flutter pub get and it moved your major and minor versions forward in your yaml file and see configuration control will be a bigger issue especially once we get into complex pipelines in python and we are using more machine learning algorithms to figure out pattern. And we're using then that pattern recognition in a decision in our decision code. So if we put that we put the AI model in our, our pipeline that's transforming data or making decisions. And, you know, that's going to be great once we set it up and it all works. But if there's a disaster and you have to recover from that, then you have to um, relearn a lot of the specifications and authentications and things like that that are um, something that you don't do day to day. And it's very kind of very uncomfortable. So I could see configuration control becoming such a big deal in the future as you're, as things are being set up, as components are being integrated, as software is being uh, integrated together and pulled together, that we'll have more of this integration scenarios where the AI is going to need to learn it. And so when there is a disaster, it rebuilds kind of like a capture replay, it rebuilds the whole infrastructure for you and uh, 
helps you. Now, I could see also where natural language processing could have been very helpful. I, I was, you know, looking through Stack Overflow for a match on this error when the NLP or the AI could be running in the background, watching what's going on, and then as I'm asking for help, it it's uh, telling me, it could tell me what's going wrong and why. And those are some it, those are some of the interesting things about AI is that it could be used as the configuration control manager. So it's managing the source code, it's making sure that code is in the GitHub, it's in proper format, it's analyze, maybe it could analyze the projects to make sure that it reconciles with the GitHub files. I don't know why that project had a problem in keeping in sync. Um, I think it might have been to the problem with the initial way that I set up the GitHub on that on that solution. And I hadn't done that before, which is interesting. I hadn't done a complete GitHub, repo, initialize, clone, set up my code, check in, check out. Um, and, and so, you know, when you're not doing things the best practice way, then you can have error creep in and the foundation, and then that just builds on it. And it was interesting because, as I said last week, I could see missing files in my project, and I was like, well, I would wonder why that is missing there. Well, and, you know, and there's still a lot of uh, command line syntax that you have to know when you're dealing with repair and so like flutter you there's a whole series of flutter commands that you, you can run well even like when I was trying to figure out fix the flutter configuration I knew that the uh, flutter pub get would get my missing packages but at the same time when I did my compile and it was throwing a set mock handler error, I was like, well, that sounds like something in testing, that there was some configuration dependency in testing that was off. So, um, you know, just trying to get things to compile, I commented out my testing, tried it again, and it fell. And at, at that point, then, well, you go, well, okay, I'll do a flutter clean. I'll clean, maybe there's a problem with one of the dependencies, so I'll do a clean. And it removes all your, your packages, and then you do your flutter pub get, and it restores those packages. And then you do your compile again, like flutter build web, and you still have the error. And the, and the error is not very descriptive, and so you're, you're very frustrated at that point. And I can see that, you know, with software, it, it's not going to be able to tell you everything. And there's so much development that's going on, and there's so much energy that's going into the system to build these frameworks. And there's a lot of momentum, and different people are coming up with different ideas, and so there's lots of competition. But the, the nice thing is, in the future, or even in the current, 
that as machines start to write code, that you uh, will not be, you'll be seen like, kind of like the black box. It'll generate maybe a thousand lines of code, maybe a million, maybe a billion. We don't know how many lines of code that the machine will be capable of generating that will be useful. And so just like as we're building construction projects with physical objects for buildings, that in the digital world, the machine will start building uh, larger objects, bigger data tables, and it will be assimilating more of our physical world in the digital world through abstraction. And it will have ability to communicate with these abstract constructs and be able to change them dynamically. Well, one of the things that I've been thinking about is the value of k-nearest algorithm, k-nearest neighbor algorithm. Because I'm trying to figure out the accident in a, in a UK area. And so what I want to do is is uh, try to get create these hot zones where from using latitude and longitude uh, where these hot zones where accidents are occurring and so we know you could then know that in a certain area that there this is an area where there's uh, high frequency of accidents maybe it's a construction zone maybe it's a an intersection. Maybe there's a stop sign that's not uh, well lit or has something blocking the sign. I remember one time I was going through an intersection and there was some foliage or whatever that was close to the stop sign and there was a tree there and I didn't see the stop sign because, you know, my mind was on the tree and I went through the stop sign and then realized what I had done. I did fortunately I didn't get in an accident, but you know, not seeing that there uh, was a distraction. So maybe there's a distraction, a curve in a road, uh, coming up over a hill, sunlight in your eyes, the surface of the road was poor, um, perhaps there was those type of factors that were affecting the, your ability to um, process the information correctly. And see, there's some things that where AI could then use that and tell you that you're if you're going uh, in excess of a certain amount of speed and you fit the profile of the accident profiles, probabilities, it could make predictions whether or not that you could be running a chance of getting into an accident so you could run it through let's say you run it through logistic regression and you get a probability back and uh, you could have that show up on your heads up display that there's a your probability of accident is increasing as you increase your speed and the AI is making those kind of predictions for you and so you know maybe time of day weather conditions you know, you might want to slow down or, or be aware that you're in these danger zones. Um, 
and and so you know that's also one of the things I was wondering about the uh, um, accidents is do, do insurance companies look at that particular profile on the accident speed how fast they were going conditions and then they get kind of an idea from the data on the individual profile and or do they just have certain uh, features or conditions kind of like a bullying logic tree that if you have so many accidents and you then you're either denied insurance or your insurance premiums go up well, what if you're commuting to through these high danger zones, and you know, do does the insurance company realize that your commute patterns are such that uh, they can charge a higher premium because the risk factor of accidents increase? Um, so th- those are those are things that are are interesting. You know, sudden changes in speed on. A, on a freeway or on the uh, interstate can also cause accidents. I remember in California driving, I think it was the 22, and you could be going 50 or 60 miles an hour and the freeway could come to a dead stop. So you always had to be paying attention what was going on ahead of you. And there's you know, always a delayed reaction with the car behind you and the car behind them and if they're trailing too close and then they have to slow down suddenly and then the car behind them has to slow down and the car behind them you know that cascade reaction can uh can cause an accident so sudden stops uh, are dangerous and it's a good reason to keep you know an adequate trailing distance behind the car in front of you because you may not be the cause of the initial accident but you may cause an accident down the line because of the delayed reactions so those are fortunately we we don't have networked computers on our car that could signal that there is sudden change in speed you know 10 cars ahead so, you know, it's it's analyzing that and and alerting us to sudden changes. But as technology gets better and as the networks become more integrated between the cars, cars could communicate. Now, one of the interesting things that some of the AI is doing now is it's watching the braking lights of the car ahead of you. So if there's braking lights in the car ahead, it's not only know doing the lidar and radar and but it's also doing the image recognition that can see that there's a brake light on and so it's slowing down in response to that brake light and and it may be receiving that input through some sort of electrical transmission maybe the it's being transmitted through a certain frequency and it's picking up that frequency and then adjusting speeds based on on uh, the degree of the frequency it's detecting. So again, we, we move to things like, you know, sensors, where sensors are 
are constantly analyzing their environment, and they're, but they're watching for certain types of input. So a, a sensor that's looking for uh, brake lights or different types of electrical frequencies in the uh, environment is going to be different, function different than a sensor that is measuring temperature or measuring humidity in the air. Um, but it's still, both systems are still transmitting digital data to a server. And so the gathering of data from all sensors will end up in the same form. It'll be in a digital form representing, representing the type of information that the sensor is gathering. So these are things that are kind of uh, interesting. I, I know I've looked at quite a few different jobs in AI and a lot of them now are asking about hardware and software knowledge for that hardware along with the sensors that they're gathering data from. So the programming uh, requires now a combination of knowledge of the hardware and software. And so, we, you know, we see more of the robot programmer model becoming effective. And, the, and those, and I think more as we get into further into the future that, you know, you will have to have a stronger knowledge of different types of sensors, equipment that's gathering information, uh, equipment that the sensors are connected to, and how they are being integrated with the hardware system. So there, there's going to be more knowledge, I think, shared about hardware integration. And then once you get the hardware integration, then the device is running and gathering information. Now, whether it's built, the operating system and, and the code is built into the device um, that depends on the vendor or the manufacturer, whether they put that software on there or they provide some level of API that you can then talk to the hardware or you, you load your own packages that can talk to that specific hardware and then transmit the, the information digitally. See, these are our challenges that we, we will face in the 21st century as we, as we, uh, as the world becomes more interconnected. So we, uh, where is this all this interconnection going? Where's all this data going? Well, I think it's to create simulations. So I'm starting to look at uh, VR Unity, Unity, and uh, it's uh, C sharp programming for the desktop. And you know, you're you're working closer with devices. So you're getting devices that you can communicate with and those devices are streaming back data uh, that it's gathering and then the software is interpreting the data and processing it and 
and uh, transmitting data back to the device. So um, it, it may be transmitting what uh, you're looking at and calculating gaze direction and as a result then it's calculating a 3D world and sending that back to a, a laser projector that's uh, showing you your 3D world on the glasses like stereoscopic glasses so maybe it's accounting for uh, the distortion that we see in vision right now when I was in there I was really impressed it didn't feel like I was in the real world but the Unreal Engine can do a lot of rendering that looks photorealistic I mean it does real-time ray tracing and so you can see complex textures and lighting that look very real and it wouldn't probably be at the resolution that our eye can see know at the 10,000 by 10,000 pixels but at the same time that's a problem of computation so if you had a million processors working on those computations could you get a scene that looks like a fog scene with different textures like leaves and bark and sunlight and while you're walking through that environment, having your mind trying to differentiate, is this real or not real? And I think that's where the VR is moving with the more advanced CPUs and, and push towards realism, is that, uh, you know, you really do create a virtual reality. And so this data then can be represented in three-dimensional form, more condensed and it can show you kind of the fluid dynamics of a changing system. I was looking at the, the small Python program uh, course at DataCamp about growth rates and I was starting to think about how to analyze things from uh, the standpoint of the, the current amount where minus the previous divided by the previous amount and calculating growth rate and then trending that you know those are simple trends that you can put in a in a line chart and that those help you understand what is happening in your organization and so things are on a steady growth maybe you look at your growth rate annually compared to the the previous year to calculate you know what uh, how your company is performing or or maybe you look at the um, amount of hours and labor and look at whether or not your labor hours are are trending upward or downward and th those things give you kind of a clue to the health of your company you know and the growth in the economy the number of orders that are coming in maybe you look at those type of things um, as patterns. So all these things kind of work together to, um, you know, and then also in manufacturing, you might be looking at defects and, and so forth in virtual reality.